0: For those of you who are new to the OSHA 3030, this is a webinar and podcast we do every 30 days. In about 30 minutes, we try and cover a new or developing area of OSHA law. We've been doing this for almost six years, so we're in our, uh, probably our, somewhere around our 71st episode, and I believe next month might be our uh, sixth year anniversary. And uh, we've, we've libraryed them all on our website khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. As I said before, my name is monish Rath. I'm an attorney here at Keller & Heckman in our OSHA law practice group. And I'm joined today by my colleague, John Gustafson, who is one of our OSHA attorneys. John, welcome, and thank you for being here.
1: Thanks, Manish. Great to be here.
0: As you know, John, we've had a number of members of our OSHA team on this program, David Savadi, Larry Halpern, these are two of the deans of OSHA law anywhere in the country in federal OSHA law states as well as state plan states. Uh, Peter De La Cruz, Javane And so, John, I'm really grateful to you for joining us uh, on the OSHA 3030. You're no uh, novice to this. You've been a participant and a speaker at the Tosca 3030 as well as on the FIFRA 3030, two of our sister programs. So this is hardly your first time. So thank you for joining us here at the OSHA 3030. And, uh, John, I think we've got a great topic today.
1: I agree. Uh, these are interesting cases and an interesting uh, dynamic that we're discussing.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So let's let's just give everyone in the OSHA 3030 community a uh, an overview of what we're going to talk about. Uh, the big idea is default judgments and defenses to default judgments under, for example, excusable neglect. And uh, two cases that have come out very recently, one of them came out this past month, so it's red hot, is David Harvey Builders. And we'll talk about the facts and the decision that came out in that case uh, surrounding the defense of excusable neglect. Uh, Then another construction firm, Coleman Hammonds, uh, was subject to a review commission decision. and We'll talk about the facts and the decision that came out there uh, surrounding the question of excusable neglect and the defense and, and whether or not that implies uh, those decisions apply a trend line. Uh, we've got another case on a failure to appear at a hearing, and generally the default judgment concept surrounds all three of these decisions. So with that's And as, John, you know, we always end with a final discussion, which uh, surrounds the practical takeaway items of what employers can do. And so we'll Make sure to save time to wrap up on that last question as well. So, let's get started. John, David, Harvey Builders.
1: Yes. So, Harvey Builders is a, a fairly straightforward case, but interesting and with worthwhile takeaways. An ocean inspector arrived at a Harvey Builders work site in Atlanta, Georgia, issued a citation. Not serious, or in the other than serious category for uh, failing to label a diesel storage tank, so the inspector hands a superintendent an information form, asks him to fill it out. Two of the fields are manager's name and main office address the The superintendent uh, leaves the manager's name blank. And then, in the main office address field, puts a secondary address, not the main address of the company. So the OSHA citation notice arrives at that secondary office or satellite office location that the superintendent put on the form. Uh, as a result, the the employer uh, failed to contest within 15 days that the company forwarded the the citation notice to the headquarters, and by the time they responded, it was too late.
0: I think that's an interesting fact pattern, and it raises a lot of questions. Ultimately, one of the things that's interesting about this case is that, obviously, OSHA believed that the 15-day notice of contest period had expired irrevocably, but it's also interesting that when this was challenged before an administrative law judge, or ALJ, that that judge agreed and did not accept David Harvey Builder's move, uh, motion for relief from the 15-day uh, rule or limit. And when they appealed it to the commission and then again to the D.C. Circuit, uh, all up the line, these tribunals all agreed that David Harvey Builder's reasons for or argument for not complying with the 15-day notice of contest limit uh, did not constitute uh, an argument that was sufficient to grant relief. So so let's talk about their argument. Ultimately, what they said was, look, we we didn't get it at the right address. It went to an address of one of our offices that's not really responsible for handling this kind of mail. And we did reply as soon as we could. We didn't do anything deliberately. It was negligent, but It was in good faith. It wasn't with any bad faith. And so we think that the excusable neglect defense applies to this case. The Review Commission and the D.C. Circuit, ultimately they were troubled that David Harvey Builders didn't offer any explanation for why the satellite office didn't more promptly forward the citation to the headquarters where the staff were located that were responsible for evaluating whether to contest this or not. And so without that explanation, they didn't have enough evidence they believed to believe that the neglect was excusable. And they also said, you know, David Harvey Builders didn't put up any evidence to explain why you were looking at a procedure in your office uh, for receiving mail and why, why the procedure wasn't followed. And it's really important for us to understand how the employer uh, was subjected to maybe an error or an accident that was outside of his control or that the procedures that it had implemented were sufficient and but somebody didn't uh, comply with it in an excusable manner. Uh, those are the kinds of things that the court said we'd like to have seen evidence like that in order to have, have considered the excusable neglect defense. John, your thoughts?
1: Uh, Those are great points, Manish. I I have one thing to add. Um, The Harvey builders uh, alleged that OSHA really should have done a better job of making sure that the citation went to the main office. Uh, Of course, OSHA came back and said, we sent the citation notice to the office address that you gave us. Uh, So the court held that OSHA had no reason to believe that uh, by sending notice to the address provided by the employer, uh, they would effectively fail to notify the employer.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, John. So we're talking about the excusable neglect standard, and I think it would probably be helpful for the members of the 3030 community to better understand uh, the excusable uh, neglect standard as a statement of law. What, what that standard is, and what are the elements of it?
1: Absolutely. So the Occupational Safety and Health Act uh, requires that the commission use federal rules of civil procedure uh, in their adjudications unless otherwise stated by that statute. So when the 15 days passes and a an employer wants to Appeal that and say look we we have a good reason for missing that fifteen days uh, they do so under rule sixty uh, with a motion for relief from that default order Rule sixty motions are judged under a Supreme Court standard developed in the pioneer case uh, and and what the Supreme Court came up with was a four factor test and they They announced that all factors need to be weighed, and the four factors are uh, prejudice, whether whether the neglect of the employer causes prejudice to the other side.
0: Yeah, that's right, John, and and here what we mean is that prejudice, uh, by prejudice we mean if the employer's delay in contesting the citation would have caused OSHA some injury in its ability to mount its prosecution of its case. So was the delay something that resulted in loss of evidence or loss of witnesses uh, during that delay time period? That might be an example of prejudice to the other side. Uh, Typically, you don't see that if somebody files their notice of contest late, but only by a few days or even a few weeks. It's not likely that you'd see substantial prejudice to the other party here, OSHA.
1: Before we keep going through the factors, it's worth noting, too, that this Rule 60 motion happens in other other contexts aside from OSHA. So this test was not developed with OSHA in mind. So that prejudice could also, in in a different context, could be cost to the other side or whether a witness is unavailable to testify. But without further ado.
0: Yeah, but, John, that's a great point. And I think it deserves one more comment. When you when you say that sometimes prejudice could be cost to the other side, oftentimes an Article Three court would simply say, "All right, well, if there was prejudice that was costs, uh, I am not going to bar the moving party from being able to mount its defense, but I might make them pay those costs," and that would be the simplest and most narrowly tailored remedy to that kind of prejudice. OSHA's costs are not really at stake in OSHA citation. Uh, contests. And so it doesn't come up as much in the OSHA context. Uh, but uh, but it is an interesting point that there are more narrowly tailored remedies than just tossing the whole case out.
1: Right. So second factor is delay and the impact of that delay, which is related to that first point Monish touched on. Uh, the third factor is the reason for delay, including, and this is important, whether the reason for delay was in the control of the movement.
0: Yeah, and John, here, really, this third bullet has two different types of variants. One is the excusable neglect defense, and the other is essentially distinct from that, which is the delay was outside of my control, Uh, was caused by factors outside of my control. And I don't think that that is a subset of excusable neglect. I think the word neglect tells us all we need to know. There is either excusable neglect or... Something even greater than that, which is something I just couldn't control, that's not neglect. That was, no matter how diligent I was, things outside of my control would have barred me from timely filing. And
1: and the fourth factor is whether the movement acted in good faith.
0: Yeah, and you made a good point earlier today, John. The, the best way to explain acting in good faith means you're not delaying something uh, out of shenanigans or gamesmanship. Your your uh, delay was something that you didn't intend to even delay, uh, and you certainly didn't intend to gain any advantage by the delay. So those are the four factors in what John, you referring to as the pioneer standard or what federal courts would look to when examining whether delay was caused by excusable neglect. So we'll get to the... A little bit more about the, the concept, uh, but I think that it's important to discuss this next case, Coleman Hammonds. Do you want to walk us through the facts in this case, John? Sure.
1: So uh, bef- a little bit about the company. Before this case, Coleman Hammonds had had a good track record of responding to citation notices. Uh, they had informally settled with OSHA three times in the last seven years, and in all three of those instances never had a problem Uh, responding within the 15 days. The employer here, Coleman Hammonds, has a standard operating procedure regarding their mail, which is that the office manager receives the mail, signed for the certified OSHA mail, will open the mail, and in doing so, take a look at it, and then distribute the mail to appropriate company personnel. But what happened in this case is that the secretary treasurer happened to be uh, present when the when the certified mail showed up? He took the the mail and distributed it to personnel unopened. So he didn't look at it. He put the citation notice on the superintendent's desk. The superintendent was away at a work site, uh, a remote location, and then returned back on the 18th day, thereby missing the 15-day deadline to respond to the citation notice?
0: Here, John, I want to be clear. The 15-day notice of contest period applies to 15 business days. And so this superintendent who was responsible for the project on which a uh, citation was issued uh, was at a job site until the 18th day Meaning, several days after the fifteenth day uh, of the notice of contest period had expired, and so his response and Coleman Hammond's uh, response was essentially, I, I got it after the fi- I only received it after the fifteenth day because I was away on business travel. Essentially, I was at a remote job site. Well, I think that's a personally the when I saw those facts, I thought that was a compelling explanation. Uh, unfortunately, the majority of the review commission, this was a two-to-one decision. The review commission is comprised of three commissioners right now. And in a two-to-one majority, the commission said, when we look at these facts, we do not find an example of excusable neglect. And therefore, they entered a default judgment against Coleman Hammonds. Uh, Essentially, what they said was, look, when you have a procedure for delivery of mail, uh, accepting mail from the U.S. Uh, Postal Service mailman and you have a procedure for distributing it internally, uh, you you have to account for all of the variations for how that procedure might play out. If your procedure is that your office manager picks up the mail, you need to demonstrate that you, that means put in evidence that you have a procedure that accounts for what happens when the office manager has stepped out or is on vacation or other leaves of absence. And you have to have a procedure where other Coleman Hammonds, Personnel or staff might intercept the mail uh, because I think that that's a foreseeable possibility. What's the procedure for those people? Uh, without evidence of how you intend to accommodate for those kinds of elements, your procedure isn't by itself complete and you haven't submitted enough evidence of what the court, the review commission, would have deemed excusable neglect. Uh, I think this is important because they. They looked at the definition of excusable neglect under Pioneer, and they found that one of the features was whether or not the circumstances were outside of the employer's control. And when they looked at the explanation that Coleman Hammonds gave, they said, look, when you look at the treasurer secretary intercepting the mail and redistributing it, he is an officer. He's a fairly senior person at Coleman Hammonds, and this was indeed within his control to have handled this properly
1: uh that those are great points manish i think one more point to about the majority decision is that it emphasized that the secretary treasurer the, the officer of the company who received the mail on that day uh is a responsible officer of the company and can make binding decisions for that company so uh in doing so the majority distinguished uh the that circumstance and the circumstance of, say, a custodian or a lower level employee just uh, out of the blue stopping by and grabbing the mail, um, this secretary treasurer can can do, can act on behalf of the company and did so in deviating from the standard mail procedure.
0: That was the review commission's uh, agreement, uh, argument, and I, I think that it was maybe a little insincere. The treasurer secretary was simply taking the mail and putting it on someone's desk. Uh, the superintendent, the policy was that the superintendents of the various projects have the responsibility to answer to OSHA citations. And so I don't think the review commission was uh, dedicating itself to this fact pattern with enough sensitivity to uh, how this company handled it. Really, the question of excusable neglect should be fa- a fact-specific inquiry. And part of that means that they should look to how the company would have allocated those responsibilities. But instead, the majority inserted itself into Coleman Hammonds and made a decision as to how they should run their mail receipt uh, procedures and how the secretary treasurer should handle a stack of mail that happens to have fallen into his hands. And although it may be a reasonable method for Coleman Hammonds to have handled it, uh, it certainly does not have to have been the method. And That's not the only reasonable method, and uh, any interceding event, such as the one that they experienced, could nevertheless serve as excusable neglect uh, because, after all, the person who was responsible simply wasn't there. He was away for 18 days during a 15-day notice of contest period. Uh, The dissent, as I said before, this is a two-to-one decision. The dissent issued his own uh, opinion, and I thought one of the most striking features of this opinion, as I read it, John, you might have uh, thought the same thing, was the uh, number or volume of footnotes in the majority opinion that were uh, anticipating and counterattacking the dissent's opinion. And uh, I don't normally see that uh, at that level of volume, that the the majority took such effort to write its opinion, then read the dissenting opinion, and then go back to its opinion and write that many different footnotes that went on the attack on the dissenting opinion I think one of the uh, issues that they, they really hammered on was this central question of uh, the the events outside of the control of the employer or the question of excusable neglect.
1: That's right, Manish. Uh, the, the dissent likened the instance here to a case where an employer was awarded relief because the notice just fell behind the car seat of the company mail driver. The dissent said, look, this is... Similar to that, somebody other than the, uh, the office manager picked up the mail and distributed it. The, the company couldn't have known that this was going to happen, and therefore it was an unforeseeable accident. It doesn't matter that the, uh, the secretary treasurer is, uh, is a responsible officer of the company. Uh, the point is that the person that picked up the mail is not the person who is contemplated by the procedure. So I think part of the reason that, that these two opinions were so contentious is because they're arguing over the Pioneer test. Is this is a unforeseen, unforeseeable accident okay? Or is it that this was within the control and responsibility of the company uh, and therefore they should be held accountable?
0: Yeah, I think that's right, John. And one of the things that troubled me about the majority opinion was that they dealt with the idea of excusable neglect in two parts. They seemed to think, well, we can concede that there was neglect involved here, but we just disagree that it was excusable. We think it was inexcusable that the treasury secretary uh, didn't open the mail and read it and handle it himself. You point out that this that the defense, Coleman Hammond, uh, analogized their own fact pattern to an already published decision, uh, Russell the L- Russell LaFroix case, uh, that's a case that you brought to my attention uh, a short while back, a few weeks ago, uh, which was another good catch on your part, John. And, you know, when you talk about a driver in the Russell LaFroix case, you talk about a driver who dropped a piece of mail underneath his car seat, and that caused the employer to miss the 15-day notice of contest period. I, I would argue, and I think everyone in the if you had a room full of 30 people, you'd have maybe 30 different opinions. And that would be, to my point, that I would argue that allowing mail to fall into your car seat is maybe more inexcusable, but an employee who's responsible for handling a particular piece of mail being out of the office for 18 days on a business assignment in a remote location is certainly excusable. I think we would all hope that we'd be, we would be cut a little bit of a break if we had to be deployed on business travel for an extended period of time, uh, that we'd all be cut a little bit of a break by somebody who's expecting to hold us to a deadline. But the review commission majority would have cut it the opposite way. And so I guess the moral of the story, since you'd have so many reasonable people looking at this differently, including the dissenting commissioner, uh, is that, that it's difficult from these cases to divine a principled strain or a principled theory that's being applied consistently by, by these different cases. And I think that that would certainly frustrate employers who are well-intentioned and trying to seek out that bright line that they know how to comply with. Uh, and it's easy to second-guess people who drop an envelope or drop it on someone else's desk. And it always seems like it's uh, so obvious after the fact. But the question of excusable neglect really should go to uh, accepting the fact that we're talking about neglect and now dealing with whether or not it's excusable neglect in the sense that uh, it's taken in the context of all of the, the factors of the Pioneer test and rather than uh, whether subjectively to commissioners Think something's excusable, and one might not. So, so that's the excusable neglect uh, concept as applied in Coleman Hammonds. I think that we're seeing a few cases haven't come out this year.
1: That's right, and the trend that we're seeing uh, with analysis of excusable neglect by the both the commission and courts reviewing commission decisions is that they are uh, prioritizing control. The control pioneer factor over the other uh, over the other three factors, and in doing so, they're uh, not permitting unforeseeable accidents to occur, which is really uh, arguably what excusable neglect is intended to do. It's it, if you can't know, if you don't, if you couldn't know that this accident's going to happen, then it's and you have a good reason, then that's okay um part of the reason that the commission and the courts are having difficulty with this test is because in the OSHA context as contrasted from the from other court civil context contexts is that in the OSHA context the other three factors almost always weigh in the employer's favor so if you were to just say well how many how many factors you know, let's compare the number of factors on each side, the employer would always win. So instead, the commission and the courts are saying, control is the most important. Let's look at that and and judge judge the case on that.
0: Yeah, and I think that, as you rightly noted, there's a split in the circuits where the Third Circuit holds that all four factors are supposed to be looked at equally. And the Supreme Court case itself, Pioneer, said the same thing, that these are all four factors to be considered.
1: Yes, certainly certainly uh every factor is relevant and should be weighed whether they should be be weighed equally is has been the source of the split.
0: Right. Let's real quickly talk about one last case, William Trahant, Junior Construction, another construction firm, all three of them construction and this one I, I believe we've either dealt with uh, OSHA 3030 case involving Trahant Construction or I've read another case involving them in the past. There's certainly no stranger to citations, uh, and as a roofing company, I think that they're in the uh, sphere of interest of the agency. So in this case, uh, the compliance officer for OSHA came, noted some roofing uh, conditions that he alleged were violative, and issued a repeat violation because he'd been at other Trahant uh, job sites before and alleged violations elsewhere. Uh, in that case, Trahant did timely uh, notice his uh, contest against the citation. But what's odd is after that, he didn't – the company did not show up at a telephonic hearing, a pretrial hearing, and then when the hearing itself was held, that's the trial for the case. Uh, He didn't show up and didn't bring any witnesses, didn't bring an attorney. Nobody showed up on behalf of Trant Construction. The commission decided to hold the hearing anyways, and OSHA presented all of its evidence, and the commission entered a default judgment essentially. And that's really what binds it to the other two – the other two it was essentially a default judgment because nobody contested it. Here it's a default judgment because uh, nobody showed up at the hearing. And, you know, when you look at the facts as alleged by OSHA and the arguments that Trehant made after the fact, they, they did have a uh, basis for mounting a contest, but, but those arguments are just not going to be considered because nobody showed up to present the evidence. Uh, I think that that's an important case. I, I guess it ties in because you know, this represents three cases, as you said, John, of perhaps a trend to enter default judgments. And I'd note that if this were in an Article Three court, there is a possibility that the judge would suspend a default judgment until at least they could get the employer on the phone and find out what the reasons were for not showing up, and then may decide, all right, that was inexcusable. I'm entering judgment by default. Or, okay, that was excusable, and I'll reschedule the hearing date. Uh, But here, the LJ decided, nope, we're just starting the hearing. Go ahead and put your evidence in. Uh, So I think that that's what makes that case interesting. Uh, With that said, let's talk about what employers should do in our remaining few minutes. John? John?
1: So um, uh, employers should designate to OSHA a mail recipient and the address best suited to respond to the notice uh, to a citation notice. There are a couple ways to do this. Uh, one way is to just have an inspection, response procedure and have that included. Uh, company personnel, the superintendent knows that these are this is the information we need to give
0: yeah that's that 's a great point, John. and you know we do as you know uh, training, we go to corporations and uh, conduct training sessions on how to handle OSHA inspections, so that their team is trained up and prepped and ready on that unfortunate day that this might happen that an inspection occurs and that 's one of the things we talk about and I do wonder why, and I said earlier, it raises questions as to why, in the in the first case we talked about, the superintendent didn 't write down his name and his address. Or the name of the person who's responsible, say, for example, your in-house general counsel or the superintendent of your job site, and that person's address, why they wrote left the manager name blank and used a satellite office address. We don't know the answer, but you're right. I think the first order of business in our list of takeaway items is to make sure you fill out that contact sheet, knowing that the purpose of the contact sheet is that's where the citation is going to get mailed and to whom it will be mailed. And if it were me, and of course, I understand, I'm a lawyer who's dedicated, you know, 25 years to contesting these things. But if I were the recipient of a contact sheet, I would fill out my name, my address, and I might notate it to say uh, to deliver to me only signature required. Uh, And so that's anything else might constitute insufficient delivery. OSHA may disagree, but I think that the the idea behind it is the same. Make sure you're getting this delivery the way you want it delivered. Absolutely. I think, I think another takeaway item for employers is, as you were alluding to, and, and we're talking about with the in-house uh, company training that we perform, is to develop a very clear procedure, not just for how to handle inspections, but for how to handle emails and mail from any enforcement agency. Everyone should know if they get correspondence from an enforcement agency of any kind, local, state, federal, that they need to know, hey, this is something special. It needs to be hand-delivered to somebody who's going to pay attention to it and not just dropped on somebody's desk indiscriminately of whether that person's even in the office that day or that week. Uh, So these procedures have to be comprehensive. Which brings me to the third point, actually. You've got to contemplate foreseeable uh, circumstances outside of the typical, like what happens when the superintendent or the office manager is out for an extended leave, but that's the typical person to handle these things. Uh, who, who do you hand it to next? Kind of... Right,
1: or maybe in the LaFoy case, uh, the driver could have first marked down before getting in the car what mail was received, uh, and then they would notice that something is gone.
0: Inventory of the mail, it's not a bad idea. Certainly to keep it in bins that are more spill-proof, uh, to transfer from the mailbox into bins like the mailman uses might be a, uh, certainly a better solution than just taking an armful and letting them spill all over uh you you'd pointed out that the last uh in the last ballot to bring in OSHA counsel earlier in the enforcement process you know the times were the more the most effective john uh handling citation contests in state plan states as well as in federal OSHA states is when we're brought in during the inspection and we can help the employer respond to inspection inquiries and by that time certainly that's early enough to help walk through the receipt of the citation itself uh But I think that there's other reasons why the earlier you bring in your OSHA counsel, the better. I noted you, John, made a great point about the rules of civil procedure and how that's the default set of rules that the review commission will apply in the absence of specific review commission procedures that speak to a specific issue. And that suggests to me that the best OSHA counsel is somebody who's not only uh, versed on OSHA law but is, well, a litigator and that that person makes a um, formidable defender for your institution. And uh, that's because the procedural rules are so litigation-oriented. So I'm glad you brought that up earlier. And it it ties into finding OSHA and litigation in the same council. Uh, Finally, I I think you just can't emphasize enough the idea that 15 days is the limit. And I can count, and I said this 20 years ago, when I first started doing uh, training programs but uh, on OSHA law, I said, you can count on one hand the number of times where employers have prevailed in explaining a ex- case of excusable neglect or other reason why they failed to meet the 15-day notice of contest, but that they should be relieved of that burden. Uh, and i say 20 years later, I think that that's still a number of cases that may fit on uh, the fingers of one hand. And so... I really think that the number one priority here is to get a contest notice out and fast and properly. That's not just a simple sentence. I think that there's a, a few things that go into a proper notice of contest uh, and should be spelled out clearly. But I think that that's really the most important takeaway. If you, if you walk away from this program learning nothing else, I think that would be the one thing that you rem- I would want you to remember. So with that said, uh, I think that covers the topic we wanted to cover. Remember, as I said before, Uh, This program will be rebroadcast as a podcast by the end of today, maybe early tomorrow. Uh, I subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on my uh, channel, which is Apple iTunes in my case, and it just shows up uh, as soon as it's ready. And that way you can hear it during your drive time or other times you have your phone but don't have your desk or Internet connection. Uh, So that's a good way to catch the OSHA 3030. Remember... If you're a returning member of the OSHA 3030 community, you probably already know that we do this program complimentary every single month, complimentary to our clients and friends of and Heckman. The only registration fee we ask in return is that you forward this invitation to three others when you get the email announcing the next OSHA 3030. If you've already done that, we are very thankful to you, but we ask you to find three more to forward the invitation on to. The, the new attendees, the new members of our community are the lifeblood of the program. That's why we've been able to do it every month for six years running. So please keep forwarding the invitation to as many people as you can think of. Other updates in between our monthly broadcasts can be caught on Twitter, at Rathmonish or on our LinkedIn pages. And uh, the next OSHA 3030 will be at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, August 22. Our sister programs, the Tosca 3030 and the FIFRA 3030, come on either monthly or aperiodically, and more about that can be found on our website as well. So thank you all for participating in this OSHA 3030. I look forward to seeing you next month. John Gustafson, thank you very much for contributing to this program. Uh, Such a valuable contribution, and I'm always grateful for the chance to work on OSHA projects with you, so I'm also grateful to work on this program with you. Thank you. And uh, until next month... Stay safe.